Ugh. Happy New Year, Joe. Ugh. Happy New Year. Was it? Was it? Well, um, no. <laughs> how was how was your festive nothing? I mean, it's a really difficult one. I mean, I found it difficult to write emails for the first few weeks of January because normally you'd be like, Happy New Year, hope you had a good Christmas, but it just seems so redundant this year. And also I don't I don't really want to open up any triggering trauma traumatic memories of although I suppose I guess I learned to appreciate what we did get a little bit more. Yeah. But we're straight back into it with the podcast. We could, this is coming out slightly later than usual, but I think we've got a bit of a problem, Joe. What problem have we got? An embarrassment of riches. We've got our interview with Andrew Doyle that we've been teasing since September, for which we have three and a half hours of material. Also, we've had our first listener request to talk about Death to 2020. And we had a listener request to never record any more podcasts, basically, didn't we? But we'll talk about that later. Shall we Shall we do some of the Andrew Doyle this time and then just this once do an extra January edition where we try and fit in some satire roundup of, of 2020 as well? So two episodes for January. Right, let's get on and record the first one then. Congratulations, listeners. Aren't you lucky? Let the music play. job nowadays to complain and be heard and try to get things cancelled and I think a lot of it is totally fake outrage because they're shouting out of a window and they want someone to hear them some of it's stupidity where they don't understand it I mean I think a lot of offense comes from people mistaking the subject of a joke with the actual target because you know you can't legislate against stupidity but you just have to ignore it you know and stick to your guns yeah there's things that 15 years ago were really right on and woke and ironic and you know ridiculing those things but now people are taking them on face value and they're ignoring the context ignoring the satire ignoring the irony and they know full well that it came from a good place but i think people just want to cause a ripple i just think there's this punishment people want blood and it's always a life sentence isn't it yeah it always comes back to haunt you you know saying sorry isn't enough i just wonder which side of politics do you see as the biggest threat against freedom of expression today is it the left side or the right side well there's no such thing as a side anymore it's ridiculous because it goes left right extreme left extreme right and then they come around and meet it's extremism that's the problem and twitter amplifies that yeah if you're mildly conservative on twitter you are hitler you know, and if you're mildly left-wing, you're Trotsky. And if you're a centrist, they both hate you and you're a coward. There's no nuance, there's no argument. And it ups and ups and ups. I think extremism is threatening everything and people are liars. They pretend it's because of what you're saying, but really they just don't want to hear it because you're not on the right side. There's so much hypocrisy and lies. And the more you tell a lie, some people believe it. That is like the new politics, isn't it? Lie enough until people believe it and it becomes a truth. How did we get onto this? Oh, I'm not sure. I thought we were just chatting whilst we waited for delivery to deliver us a delicious lasagna from Shropshire Farm Foods. Shropshire Farm Foods don't use delivery. They are Shropshire Farm Foods. They're an independent business model. They don't they don't go via delivery. But also the lasagna would have to be in two places. And that isn't what's happened. That's not what apart from the fact that you've got Shropshire Farm Foods wrong, that's not what happened. We've confused our words for the words of Ricky Gervais speaking in October on the Scandinavian talk show Scarflan. Silly us, that hasn't happened in a good long while. Seeing as it has happened though, 
Joe, what do you think about Ricky Gervais? Mixed feelings. I think Ricky Gervais must be fated forever for the creation of The Office. I think that was an absolutely seminal point in British comedy. People had done sort of little sketches like that, which is a kind of comedy I'd always liked. But The Office was irrefutably genius. And I think that that is the work of someone who is very good at comedy. I find some of his stand-up somewhat self-aggrandizing and... I think stand-up loses something, doesn't it, when the person is consistently coming from the conscious position of being better, more famous, richer and more fated than anyone else. And those are the bits of the stand-up I tend to find a bit objectionable. And I lose respect for... There's a, a significant body of male writers of sitcoms who write sitcoms in which the main character, played by them, who is... Not necessarily that conventionally attractive. He seems to find much younger, more attractive women magnetically attracted to them. And I found that whilst Afterlife initially seemed to have some interesting things to say about grief and mourning and loss, um, increasingly I found it more and more improbable that literally everybody in that character's life seemed to exist solely for the purpose of making him feel better. Even Pen widowed Penelope Wilton had seemingly no greater object in life than to cheer Ricky Gervais up. I think that sort of tells you something about someone when they keep when they write themselves roles like that. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think of Ricky Gervais? I mean, I have mixed feelings about Ricky Gervais as well, in that I really like him <laughs> most of the time. <laughs> that's think, not mixed. That's one no, feeling. Well, I'm going to get to the mixed bit. I mean, I really, I, his stuff, most of his stuff, some of the stuff that Ricky Gervais has made is the funniest stuff I've ever seen. Grant Mitchell in Extras or Liam Neeson in Life's Too Short. Or, I mean, I think that some of that stuff is really, really good. Uh, he makes me laugh. My problem with him is I get that the point of his comedy, and it makes me laugh very much, is that he always goes too far. And the point of it is often says that the character is doing it, if it's David Brent or whoever, like they're the object of the satire, like that anyone could say these things. But he sometimes he goes so far, it's so horrible. I'd never stop him from doing it, but it's so mm -hmm. horrible. I think I think there's a point where we are then laughing at the thing that the person who's being satirised would say a comment about. I mean, I'm getting quite, it's getting quite convoluted. But for example, have you seen the film Life on the Road? No. Okay, so that's the David Brent movie where he starts a band. Oh, yes, I have. Very, very funny. Yeah. Well, the bit when he does the song, like, Don't Make Fun of the Disabled, and mm. there's disabled people in the audience, and then he sings a song, and the joke is, look, he thinks he's woke, he thinks he's virtue signaling, he thinks this is helpful but it's actually it's patronizing it's condescending but then i mean there's the bits in that joke where you're it's inviting you to laugh at people who have severe disabilities and you're not i'm not always convinced that you're laughing at david brent you know what i mean i almost can't conceive of the fact that the same person could do so like when david brent who is like there's no question about it he is he's a fool he he's offensive he's obnoxious and he says something like david brent i, I would never make a joke about the disabled because there's nothing funny about them. Just give generously. And and it's really cringe-making, but it's it's like you relate to exactly what it is that he's satirising, which is people who actually are ableist, but but kind of they, they think that saying, like, give generously means that, that they're not. How the same person who recognises that all the shades of nuance between actually being overtly offensive and abusive to disabled people and being covertly or like unintentionally almost even more so how the mind that comes up with that then writes fucking Derek seems to me 
there's nothing more there than aren't people with learning disabilities funny it's like impressions people do in the playground when they're about nine so he's a complex character isn't he we're, we're, what, we aren't even supposed to be talking about Ricky no, Gervais, are we? One last thing about Ricky Gervais is that he said in the um, one of my favourite pieces of comedy television ever is when Liam Neeson goes to to Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant for advice in Life's Too Short on how to be a comedian, and makes a series of jokes about AIDS and cancer and all sorts of things, and then they advise him you can't make jokes about that, like you can't make jokes about these things, and he looks at the camera and says how does Ricky Gervais get away with it, and they're like we don't know. But I think that is a tip in the hat to the fact that although a lot of it is very clever and nuanced, part of Ricky Gervais's comedy arsenal is just saying things that are offensive and inflammatory for the shock value of hearing them be said. So yeah, anyway, we're not supposed to be talking about Ricky Gervais. What are we supposed to be talking about, Joe? Well, in a way, um, that little meandering ramble chat sets up lots of the things that we'll be talking about on the podcast today, um, or that we talked about on the podcast that's coming out today with returning guest, comedian, satirist and commentator, Andrew Doyle. And what is the podcast to which Andrew Doyle is returning? This is the podcast that is called Smith and War Talk About Satire, the podcast in which I, Joe War, and you, Adam Smith, talk about satire for some reason. And yeah, as you've just said, it's finally time to broadcast our much-anticipated interview with Andrew Doyle, which we actually recorded way back in September, but for various reasons, mostly down to us not having the time to get this out whilst trying to keep on top of work during our first full pandemic semester. Because of that, it's been delayed a few times, but we're delighted to finally be able to share this with the world. We, we are. Um, it's, been, it's been a strange old time, hasn't it? And we're, we're grateful to Andrew for speaking to us again and then for, for waiting so long while we got this ready to, to share. And it was a really long conversation, wasn't it? That interview went on for about three hours and we we talked about everything there was there was a fair bit of editing to do not least all of the chunks of it where we had to say we need to stop the zoom meeting because we've run out of 40 minutes see you back here in a bit so um oh oh we do do it all on a shoestring don't we <laughs> we do oh um, and it really was a good chat i mean Andrew was very, very lovely and affable. It was a meandering conversation. It was a rambling conversation. We went all over the place, but the heart of it was Andrew's latest satirical work, Titania, because I keep, in the interview, you'll notice, listeners, I keep saying Titania. Her name is Titania. That was the nerves. Titania, Titania McGrath. <laughs> Titania McGrath, my first little book of intersectional activism. And we talked about both the politics and the ideas that, that were the reason he wrote the book, and also the sort of politics and practices that you rallying against in writing that book. I think, think you can say Titania or Titania, but what you can't, but a lot of people say Tatiana and that that's just a different name. So as long as we're not, as long as we're not saying that, I think we're okay. Yeah. So this is the fourth episode I'd say where we've kind of been explicitly thinking about the relationship between satire and the whole idea of wokeness and I think it's maybe worth acknowledging that's not necessarily an agenda that we have but it seems like we we keep coming back to it at the moment yeah the podcast isn't Smith and War talk about satire and wokeness but uh, but yeah so we spoke to Andrew back in October 2019 about Titania McGrath's character which had just come out then which is called just woke do we say a little bit about what Titania McGrath is for the uninitiated? Yeah, well, Andrew actually described her really well in the, obviously, because he created her, in the current issue of the magazine, The Critic, which I don't know if you've seen it on the shelves, but quite mm-hmm. interesting, just from a caricature perspective, quite an interesting thing about the cover of The Critic. So this is the lead story. Andrew Doyle, Titania McGrath has, Titania McGrath has got me cancelled by the comedy club. 
And then there's a caricature, as there often is in the front of the critic, of Titania McGrath painting over a poster that says, live tonight, Andrew Doyle. And I don't think that I've ever seen that before, where a character who is themselves a caricature that doesn't exist is then caricatured. Uh, yeah, and that, that almost that she's taken on agency and done it. I mean, obviously it means people like her and the things that she is a, a kind of created to be a representative of. But it's something that I noticed in the interview, listening to it again, is that I noticed that Andrew kind of talks about her as uh, uh, sometimes as though she is real, as though he's a person that she knows and, and doesn't like and is irritated by. And he actually kind of often talks about her as you know she is this she does that she makes this mistake rather than saying this group of people do that or the group of people I am aiming to satirize do that it she does seem in all kinds of ways to have taken on a chillingly plausible life of her own but yeah how how did he describe her in the critic? Well, he said Titania McGrath is an intersectional activist who began life on Twitter in order that she might chastise the unwoke for their moral impurity and proclaim her infinite virtue to the cybersphere. For those of you not on Twitter, that's 80% of the country who actually value their time on earth, you may not be aware that such self-aggrandizing behavior is considered acceptable. On Twitter, it's the norm. It's effectively a digital playground in which grown adults toss their half-baked opinions around like pies in that scene from Bugsy Malone. Yes, so we spoke to Andrew and we talked about how the satire works with Titania, Titania which he also actually summarises quite nicely in that same piece, saying that Titania's tweets are designed to ridicule the excesses of the social justice left, whilst her interactions tend to expose the folly of those on the right who take her at face value and lose their temper. As such, their targets are targets are not limited to one side of the political spectrum. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's a really good point in that whilst she herself satirises what is perceived to be the kind of extremes of the, the left, the people who come out and berate her who don't understand that it's a satirical account expose some of the nastier sides of the, the right. Absolutely. And that, so the first episode where we spoke to Andrew in October 2019, which listeners can go back and listen to if they've not heard it already. In that interview, we, well, we got into detail about how Andrew sees that satire working and the ways in which the satire can be used to skewer what Andrew described as being a kind of dogma that substantiates wokeness and makes it into a kind of faith-based cult whose participants are prepared to do anything, no matter how authoritarian or totalitarian, or what the cost might be to their targets to demonstrate their moral purity. So that's... Yes. Do you want to say anything else that isn't in the script? No. <laughs> then we spoke to Sharon Lockyer, director of the Centre for Comedy Studies Research, who held the view that rather than critiquing social justice, comedy and satire can also be used as a force to pursue social justice. And that was a particularly useful conversation because it really showed the distinction between the actual principles of social justice, Sharon spoke of advancing through comedy and um, justice in terms of distribution of wealth, of opportunities and privileges within society. And then there's something different sometimes, which is social justice discourse as it plays out on social media. And I think that's the, in inverted commas, wokeness that Andrew is, is satirising, not the principle of distribu distributing wealth differently, but the way that um, the kinds of discourses this gives rise to. Right. So, yeah, those two, I think you can look at those two episodes as evidence of this podcast's balance. But actually, I think those two positions can coexist. No one that we've spoken to, I think, is against the principles of social justice. Although Sharon said she'd be hesitant to satirise the discourse in case in satirising the discourse, you harmed vulnerable or marginalised groups that social justice activism intends to protect. I think that is a difference. But generally speaking, I think it's possible to be for social justice and 
critique some of this social justice rhetoric yeah i suppose it's back to the back to the nuance thing again isn't it that you can um yeah you can imitate a thing or mock a thing and not be against the principles that it is um in principle for in theory so if you want a different take on that you can check out that episode and then we also spent two episodes talking to lee stein author of the satire on wellness and capitalism self-care and lee was interested in satirizing the relationship between wokeness and capitalism and the extent to which and the ways in which people signal their virtue by buying things. And it was around that time that we had an opportunity presented itself to speak to Andrew again. But so much had changed. So we had explored this corner of the satirical world so much more in the year since we last spoke. Titania had evolved. Andrew's career had taken him in slightly different directions. Yes. And of course, also a global pandemic was happening. And when we spoke, I think it was just a couple of months after the tragic death of George Floyd and the subsequent Black Lives Matter movement and protests. Andrew's a really interesting figure, and we get into this in the interview, but there's almost two sides to his career. He's a satirist and a comedian, and this is where we find Titania, his stand-up, and other comedy creations like the character Jonathan Pye. But he's also a writer and a commentator, most often writing cultural commentary, and this is where you might find his work in publications like Spiked, the critic that we've already talked about, The Spectator, amongst others. Yeah, so for example, since we spoke to him, Titania's new book has come out, which is a satire, but Andrew's also just published a work of non-fiction called Free Speech, Why It Matters. Yeah, and something that I in particular find really interesting is that the two sides seem completely connected. Titania is just another way for Andrew to present and explore the ideas that fuel his commentary, which is, you know, concerns about freedom of speech, free speech, anxiety, that what we're seeing is a a new kind of authoritarianism and also his commitment to libertarian values. Yeah, and I think there's an extent to which you can't really separate them. So to appreciate and get into how Titania is working, you also need to think about her creator's politics, his political outlook. And we did do a lot more of that this time, I think. Yeah, and I, I was interested to hear Andrew talk about these connections because it made me think about the 18th century. Good. (laughs) don't worry we don't need to go all the way into the 18th century corner for this it's just a quick observation but Alexander Pope was regarded as this great cultural commentator this guardian of culture if you like and he wrote essays and letters and all kinds of issues as did Jonathan Swift for that matter but ultimately essentially it was their satire that provided the foundation for their position people listened to their cultural commentary because they were satirists somehow being a satirist meant that you were also credible and serious and your opinion mattered on this stuff and I think a similar dynamic I see a similar dynamic playing itself out in Andrew's profile yeah and so that's the end of that bit and um, just to say then this is a far wider ranging conversation than we'd normally have because the job of this podcast is to talk about satire but I think that does make it clear how everything connects back to Andrew's satirical project so do you think there's anything we should sort of explain or contextualize yeah I do I did wonder if it's perhaps worth contextualising some of these conversations about the relationship between wokeness and comedy, for example, just to get a sense of how this has all brought itself to Andrew's doorstep, I suppose. So there's two big stories from the last couple of years that I wondered what you thought about, Joe. Mm-hmm. So, so one of them is a little from August 2018, so a little while ago now, but I think it, it still gets referred to, was the address of Nicka Burns at the Edinburgh Comedy Awards Festival. She addressed the industry. She said this. She said... Uh, She's sort of talking about the challenges for comedians moving forward. How do they write a joke where they have to get all the right words in exactly the right order when meaning and audience sensibilities are changing and evolving so quickly? How do you get clarity and balance between self-expression, freedom of speech, conscience and consciousness of others? Is it possible to be dangerous? If so, where is the line? 
Can you have some opinions without being inadvertently offensive? What is it to be brave and exciting and funny and still woke? I think as we embrace the whole concept of the woke movement, we will look back at this decade as a transformative moment for comedy like the 1980s. For a funny hour of woke comedy, look no further than John Robbins and Sarah Pascoe. Last year, they both did shows on the breakup of their relationship without one single word of disrespect to each other. Good comics are intelligent, clever and talented. I am looking forward to comedy's future in the woke world. If I wanted a funny hour of comedy, whether I wanted it to be woke or not, I think I would look further than Sarah Pascoe, but that's just me. So yeah, this is this is interesting, isn't it? Because there are some things here that are being taken as absolute givens that, that they're, they're not up for debate. So what can you have strong opinions? What is it to be brave and exciting and funny and still woke? I'm looking forward to comedy's future in the woke world. The, there is, the, the decision's already been made here, hasn't it? So there's kind of not much point asking these big questions about, oh, how do you balance it? Can you be dangerous? Where is the line if, you, if you're kind of saying this thing is non-negotiable? Now, I'm not saying that I would like to see an Edinburgh Comedy Festival full of, I don't know, full of incredibly discriminatory um, material or material that actively pointedly directed hatred um, hatred not hate at certain groups but then that wouldn't be comedy would it that would be like the Nuremberg rallies or something I, th- I think you absolutely can have offensive opinions in comedy it should kind of live or die based on how many people it makes laugh and how hard they laugh and I think given that for example like a comedian that we've come back to lots of times and that I still admire very much Stuart Lee kind of faced outrage in the on the opposite side of the spectrum to this kind of wokeness debate faced criticism of of, on the grounds of tastelessness and offensiveness in the Daily Mail among other places for his joke about Richard the Hamster Hammond and his car accidents in his in in Stuart Lee's stand-up material and because the uh, I think it was Jan Moyer in the Daily Mail kind of wouldn't engage with the context in which it was said she reduced the whole routine to kind of Stuart Lee would like to kill Richard Hammond whereas the whole point of the routine was about context and about the nature of jokes and about the kind of jokes that are made on Top Gear so having seen that play out and being firmly on the side that Stuart Lee can make a joke which is which can be considered offensive by some people, but the context of it means it isn't. And actually, like, you know, he can still say whatever what he likes anyway. I think it would be unreasonable on my part to now kind of take the opposite point of view and say, just because they're not in inverted commas woke, that their work mustn't be taken in context or mustn't be allowed to stand because some people find it funny, even if even if I don't or other people don't. Like I think loads of comedians are are shit and offensive and awful but most of them are dead now anyway but you you can't start with the premise that comedy has to occupy a certain political position or a certain cultural ideology because that's not the primary way you define whether something is successful comedy or not what point it makes I completely agree I think you put that final point there is exactly what I would have said but I think better which is that you can't, it doesn't seem right to me to establish parameters for comedy. That You know, when comedy is about being subversive and upending expectations and look at and creating dissonances from which comedy can arise to then say, yes, we can, you know, to assume as this appears to do 
that you're operating within the parameters of a broadly but not that clearly defined set of acceptable statements doesn't seem it seems massively counterintuitive to me just from a comedy perspective yeah although I suppose that's troubled in a sense by what we're going to move on to speak about in a moment by the the sort of complementary fact that lots of comedians do use their stand-up and their routines to make impassioned points about things they feel very strongly about. Like, they aren't just getting in there to extract belly laughs out of their audience on a a, a laugh-a-minute scale. It's not... They do use stand-up in particular, although other forms of comedy too, perhaps in some instances, as a platform to say things that they genuinely do think. So it's it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because if you're saying like the parameters of whether it's comedy is whether people like it and laugh at it and enough people consider it's funny, then how do you allow for the fact that many a comedian does and always has really successfully used used their comedy as a a space in which to, to lecture sometimes even? And the other story that I just wanted to bring to your attention is much more recent than that. And this was Frankie Boyle speaking to Louis Theroux when he, friend of the podcast, Frankie Boyle, he said, oh, Ricky Gervais, who we were talking about earlier, I saw his routine about trans people and I thought it was very lazy. Boyle added, I would like him to have the same respect for trans people that he seems to have for animals. I think that's not a lot to ask. Obviously, I think this had the desired effect and it blew up on social media with lots of people mm-hmm. pointing out the potential hypocrisy of Frankie Boyle criticising somebody else for using allegedly dehumanising language when he built his career on saying, on that exact thing of saying the most outrageous thing possible. I mean, I've seen interviews with Dara O'Brien where he said, you know, the best thing from Up the Week was when Frankie Boyle left because no one could, he shut everything down by just saying the most extraordinarily offensive thing. And there's nowhere to go from there. Billy Bindle has said that what Frankie Boyle has done is he's just pivoted to wokeness because that's the current form of bullying. So he was a bully before and he's a bully now because he can clothe his insults in this kind of woke language. But then there were some people who were saying it's not fair to complain that Frankie Boyle is being hypocritical by criticising somebody else when he said all those things in the past. Because what we're seeing here is a redemption narrative. He's learnt his lesson and just happens to have landed upon a sensibility that's exactly uh, very popular and can't be criticised. Now... I don't follow Frankie Boyle that closely, although I'm aware of the, some of the most obnoxious things that he said that, that people were citing in the context of that debate. But are you aware of, like, when the, the idea of the redemption narrative has come up, is there a point at which Frankie Boyle has said, like, yes, I used to be consistently repellently offensive to and about women, and I'm sorry for that? Or is, has that shift just kind of happened quite quietly? I think, I think like, does he want to be redeemed? Well, he went away for a while. He said some horrific things, didn't he? Had it peaked, peaked in the Paralympics, disappeared for a while, then started writing columns for The Guardian, which, which suddenly people were, I remember people praising. It's like, yeah, Frankie Ball's back and he's exactly on point now. Although the first time I saw him write a really big piece, it was about Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party. And it, it started with a joke about Yvette Cooper sounding like a car that Jeremy Corbyn would have got inside and driven around in the in the 1970s so I mean it hadn't it was the same kind of stuff I thought but then then he's come back on television he has that new world order now doesn't he very often does a monologue at the end about Mm. how intolerance is bad but so he's not said like I I wish I hadn't joked about um implied that Katie Price's disabled son is unloved by both parents and is constantly trying to rape his mother he hasn't like said in retrospect that was a bad thing to say I wish I hadn't said it 
Well, I would like Frankie Ball to have the same respect for women than in that case. I think it's difficult to escape the conclusion that Frankie Boyle knows what side his bread is buttered. And yeah, maybe he was annoying on Mock Meat for saying the most offensive things, but the offensive things pretty much always seem to fall in the category of offensive specifically about women. And that's that that seems to have somehow found its way into the, the narratives that he's endorsing now. Yeah, so just... One other thing before we play the interview, we talk quite a bit in this about theory and critical theory and in particular um, about what Michel Foucault did and did not say. So do you think we should have a quick contextualising chat about all of that stuff? What was that that tweet that went viral about some student who said, do we have to talk about Foucault and all those lads or can we just leave that out? (laughs) But I I guess we need to to maybe talk a little bit about that lad. Yeah, we talk about Foucault a good bit. I mean, so so Foucault is interested in truth, power and discourse, wasn't it? So when he talks about discourse, he's talking about language. He's talking about knowledge and power, and power resides in knowledge, so therefore systems of language come up to control the ways in which people can access knowledge and use knowledge. So, you know, university is where knowledge is created, but also where knowledge is mediated through specific types of discourse and language that not everybody can understand, and you have to train very hard to understand. I don't think he's particularly interested in metaphysical truth, the idea... That there, is, that there is such a thing as truth, but the way in which truth is created through language and legitimated. So, for example, you know, if a judge endorses something, that then becomes legally true. That then leads to, you know, a lot of his stuff is about how the world is socially constructed through language. That doesn't necessarily mean that he doesn't think that there is a material world. And also, I think what's important for our interview is that he wasn't particularly interested in how any of this stuff is applied. So if, list, if listeners have got like 45 minutes or even 10 minutes, and they want to get a sense of what Foucault is like, I'd recommend going on YouTube and looking up the Foucault and Chomsky debate, where Chomsky, who's another linguist, is saying that society has to have a moral imperative. Society has to want to do good and should want to do good. And religion, for example, is one of the things that instills that moral imperative. Foucault just sits there and says, your morality is socially constructed. Your religion is socially constructed. Everything is socially constructed. And Chomsky gets quite frustrated because he's like, yes, I know it is, but don't we then have to do something with it? And he's like, I'm not interested in that. I'm just interested in proving that everything is socially constructed. And I think those notions about what is and isn't socially constructed have been um, interesting on in many forms and positions on this debate recently, haven't they? Because there was that, who was that Tory MP who said no more critical race theory because we're every, all the universities are influenced by Foucault who said there's no such thing as, as truth or meaning or something. And that was kind of widely ridiculed but yeah um, so Foucault it kind of makes the point that the truth can be constructed manipulated what is considered to be true or not true is contingent upon who has the power and where what discourses are being wielded and so on but that isn't the same as him saying nothing is true or that there's, there's no material reality so much of, much of what we consider to be true might be ideologically inflected but that doesn't mean that nothing at all is true. So if you boil it right down to a very reductive nutshell, Foucault's whole thing is everything is socially constructed through language. Everything that happens in society is constructed and mediated through language and power behaves in interesting ways within that network of language. 
One last definite final thing. Oh, yes, because we've had another accolade, haven't we? Another one. But yeah, after our consumer Christmas episode, and if you haven't listened to that yet, it includes us talking about Tony McGrath's latest book. Andrew very kindly retweeted our our tweets about that in which we were tagged. And because we were, were tagged in it, we were able to see another Twitter user reply to that tweet. Comment that our podcast is weirdly compulsively boring but think satire no more should be marketed as a sleep aid that way we'll all really know what satire means and therapeutic to boot so many lives saved so yeah that was that was really nice and I think it was nice that that comment was made on a tweet in which we'd been tagged so we'd get to see that 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 was that was lovely wasn't it it was I don't think it makes very much sense. I mean, I'm, I'm on board with criticising the podcast for being boring, whatever. That's subjective. That's your opinion. He's exercising his, his right to free speech. But why would it save lives for us to be used as a sleep aid? Is there a crisis with, with people? And how would you find out what satire meant if you listen to the podcast and it sent you to sleep? How are you then finding out what satire means? I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, is there... Is, is, there... It, is it like when Chandler in Friends listens to those tapes to stop smoking and then they, they sort of make him apply his lip balm in a feminine way because he's accidentally got the one that's targeted at as women. So if you listened to this while you were falling asleep, you'd find yourself in the morning, like you'd just be going around thinking that you fancied a Shropshire farm foods or something because we've got in your in your head. Do you think that's what he means? That, that, and, and that would in turn save lives. Yeah, now you've explained it to me. I completely understand what he's getting at. But anyway, I'm sure that would find my last point definitely not at all boring. What's your last point? Well, my last point is that I think just before we play the tape, we should say what the following things are. Authoritarianism, totalitarianism, and libertarianism. So what are they doing? You do authoritarianism while I find a good definition of um, totalitarianism. So authoritarianism is where it's a state which enforces strict obedience to the author- to one authority at the expense of personal freedom. So it'd be authoritarianism to be like, this is this is what you're allowed to do. And then everyone would just have to do that. That's authoritarianism. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and as much as people wield um, terms like fascist around about our government, it is anything but, in most instances, authoritarian, isn't it? We we don't live in an authoritarian state, as evidenced by our sort of piss-weak lockdowns, for example. Yeah, whereas a totalitarian state is one where kind of everything... It, well, it's Big Brother, basically, isn't it? Everything's centralised, it's more akin to a, a dictatorship, and you you are sort of completely every aspect of your, your daily life would be dictated by the state. Yeah, and libertarianism is all about maximum freedom, isn't it? So having the freedom... Everyone has freedom to act and do whatever they want as long as it doesn't you know, cause harm to others, generally speaking. But then who gets to decide what the harm is? Uh, well, that's, that's the... Yeah, that's, that's the thing. That's but it would, rub. So, you know, I could say and do whatever I wanted. And if that offended you, well, you'd have the right to be offended, but you couldn't stop me from doing it. But at the same time, if you wanted to retaliate, I couldn't stop you from doing it. So that's that would be libertarianism in a, in a, in a nutshell. You haven't got another thing, have you? No, that's all the things. Now that everybody right. is primed and no doubt extraordinarily excited, let's play the interview. Yes. Oh, I've gone to sleep.
Just uh, on the technical front, uh, at 40 minutes, if we're still talking, we'll have to sign out and sign back in again, I'm afraid. Oh, yeah. I've heard that when we're trying to play Trivial Pursuit. Well, this is the good thing for us about this pandemic is that everyone is used to using Zoom now. I think when we interviewed mm. you last time, we used Zoom and Zoom wasn't, not everyone knew what Zoom was. So No, no one knew. No, I mean, I think that the virus was probably developed by the makers of Zoom, probably in, <laughs> in collaboration with the labs in Wuhan, I imagine. You know, they've done all right. So welcome, Andrew. Thanks for being back on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So since we last spoke to you, I've had a sense because, I mean, I listen to a lot of things that you appear on and read a lot of things that you write. And it seems that increasingly your role as a satirist seems to be the, the main way you're introduced or that that seems to have taken precedence. Maybe it's just the types of things that I read and listen to, but that seems to have taken precedence over your role as a comedian. But at the same time, aside from Titania and aside from Jonathan Pye, you seem more prevalent as a writer and a commentator. So I just wondered how all of that connects and where you see your role as a satirist fitting into these things. Yeah, it's a good question because I don't choose how I'm introduced, right? So <laughs> normally people just go to my website and they'll, they'll decide what's most appropriate for the programme. So sometimes I'm comedian, sometimes I'm writer comedian, sometimes I'm satirist, sometimes I'm satirist writer, What you know. Uh, yeah, and yet, I, th I guess what I guess what you're saying is true is that most of the the work I'm producing at the moment is probably more serious non-satirical commentary. I I think mm. uh, if I were to sort of gauge the, the uh, particularly in lockdown, I've been writing a lot of articles and producing a lot of things, and I'm currently writing a non-fiction book about uh, the social justice ideology and the culture war, which should be out next year. So that so that it, that seems to be what I'm doing more of now. Mm. Um, but maybe that's just because I finished the second book by Titania and I wanted to just focus on other things. But I think they do. Well, I mean, it's all I think satire obviously has a purpose, doesn't it? A and I wouldn't say an ideological purpose. I'd say a political purpose. I'd say there's there's a sense in which it's obvious that I'm addressing things that I perceive to be wrong in society, moral failings mm. of those who are in power or the people I perceive to be in power. And, and that's why I do what I do. But it's also the same aim of what I write for Spectator or Spiked or where, whatever publication has me. So the objective there is the same. You, I mean, you could say, I suppose, that satire is comedy as activism I suppose there's there's an element of that to it so that's yeah so I think it all it all definitely informs each other in fact sometimes when I tweet through Titania as a particular about a particular news story that has exercised me in some way I'll often write an article about it as well or sometimes I'll just tweet as myself about it and then you'll get both tweets at the same time within 10 minutes addressing the same article but one from a satirical perspective and one from just me saying directly what I think which is quite uh, an interesting thing to do it also means that if people want to understand what my genuine feelings about something is it's very easy to do so so a lot of the time with Titania people either misinterpret or have a preconceived notion of what it is I'm saying and will attack me for it whereas if they just take 10 seconds to google the topic and my name they'll work out what I actually think about I mean I had this the other day I had someone a, a complete stranger on Twitter with a lot of followers though attacking me for for, a view, for an opinion I did not have attacking me for my opinion on the Windrush you, scandal you saying that Italian or you no, Andrew Doyle right. Sort of saying, um, you obviously don't care about black people. You don't care about immigrants because you've never commented on Windrush. And I said to him, well, tell me my opinion on Windrush because you seem to know what goes on in my mind. He said, well, that's the problem. You, you haven't commented and therefore it means you, you don't care. So I linked him to TV clip of me attacking the conservatives for the, their, their hostile environment policy and for Windrush. And, and, he's, and of course, because he comes from that social justice mindset, he can't back down and can't say sorry and can't say I got that wrong. They can't do that because the whole worldview is based on certainty, a kind of religious certainty. I think you could argue and you could rightly accuse me of over explaining what I do as Titania. If someone asks me, 
able to explain the joke or explain the, the, the concept. And I sh probably shouldn't really, <laughs> but I do it because the topics matter to me and that people that seem so willing to misinterpret, I think often willfully, uh, I think it's better to explain the points. It's been interesting okay. watching what's happened since, so since we've known that, that you are Titania and you've got the two separate accounts, because sometimes it seems like Titania will be satirizing a symptom of, of all of this. And then yeah. Andrew Doyle will explain the cause or suggest a reason for the cause. So the two work in that way. I think right. Are you know a lot more than I do about satirists in history, but in terms of, do you think this is, would you think it's normal for satirists to explain themselves? There was a sort of motive behind the question. So one of the things I'm working on at the moment is I'm trying to begin to put a book together about the figure of the satirist in the 18th century but how they were perceived of and how they represented themselves outside of their, or in addition to their work. So it's really similar. Yeah. And one of the, I came up, I found a piece of criticism a few weeks ago. Joe will be sick of hearing this because I keep reading it out. But it was by Ashley Marshall, who's written a book about the history of satire in the 18th century. And she says, satire is not a genre. It's an elaboration of critique. So, okay. so it's, um, and she says, so sometimes that's critique plus distortion, critique plus humour or critique plus gratuitousness in motive, but it always comes from a position of commentary and critique. So it's yes. interesting that you offer critique as Andrew Doyle in The Spectator and Spiked, and, and then, but then you do the, the sort of satirical distortion into Tania. I think it probably goes for comedians as well more and more. I, mm -hmm. I think people like Ricky Gervais are often in the position of having to explain his jokes and things like that, which I think comedians are now in that position because of a cultural development where people are taking humour literally or comedians material literally or seem determined to do so. And not just com comedians, actually, art, artistic representation generally. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, you can have a book like Huckleberry Finn, which is a satire, on the hypocrisy of uh, the, the so-called morality of the grown-ups who all, however, support slavery and have no problem with dehumanizing Jim, but they but preach about how wonderful, how virtuous they are. Mm. So it's a satire, it's an anti-slavery, unambiguously anti-slavery book, uh, which is satirical in nature, and yet it's been taken off the shelves of schools and taken off the curricula uh, because of its use of racial language. Well, it wouldn't make sense to write that book without the, that language. It wouldn't work. And so therefore, there's a kind of willful dismissal of context, which you get more and more. Comedians are facing it more and more, as in somebody jokes about a topic and they, they have complaints or they have, they're called onto Radio 4 to justify themselves. And of course, what's happening is people are mistaking the subject of the joke with the target of the joke. Mm. But more and more comedians are having to explain themselves. So... I, I think it's just inevitable, given the sensitivity of the topics that I'm addressing, that I will end up having to do this. But I think it's something new. I think it's something of our time. I've never, I've never understood going to see a comedian, for instance, let's take stand-up, and assuming that what the comedian is saying is a literal expression of their views. I've never understood that because, of course, it isn't. Because <laughs> a joke can't work that way. I was just thinking that there has been a lot, maybe especially over the summer, there's been a lot of instances of comedians kind of having to show their working or choosing to show their working or talking about the art of comedy. So it's like Rowan Atkinson just the other day, wasn't there? We've talked about John Cleese, David Williams and Matt Lucas. There's, there's been a lot of kind of exposition of like what the joke is and what the joke isn't in a lot of instances apologizing for the joke yes. even 10 20 years retrospectively or defending the joke i think maybe 20 years ago comedians would have just said fuck off you, if you don't understand it it's your problem mm. and i think now there's more and more i think for instance with john cleese it's not pandering i think it's exasperation so when they removed that episode of faulty towers the germans from UK TV um, and I know they backtracked they put it back on eventually but but they removed it and they issued a statement and UK TV said that the use of it was outdated language and racial slurs right 
And then John Cleese had to say, look, the racial slurs are spoken by a character called the Major. He is an old fossil from a bygone time. We're making fun of him. Mm. That we put the words into his mouth not to endorse those attitudes, but to make fun. It's so remedial, right? And that, that there is a sense of exasperation to this, that you would, you, it's an infantile way of looking at comedy and we shouldn't have to explain it. But, but there is now a kind of broad infantilism in the way that people consume art and culture and literature. And that's a massive problem. And I don't, I, I don't know where the shift comes, why it comes. I suspect it's come out of this uh, ubiquitous, what people call postmodernism, but it isn't really. It's actually very, it's a perversion of postmodernism through which language controls everything and determines everything. You know, if you, if you believe that society is, is completely controlled by these invisible power structures, like a grid, the way Foucault described it, and you think that knowledge is created uh, through language, okay, and sustained through language, and you believe that certain terms, jokes, co uh, concepts, when they're expressed verbally, normalise attitudes and ideas, then I suppose you can reach the conclusion that even joking about homophobia or racism will normalize homophobia and racism. I can see that leap, but it is a faith-based position and it's, it's, not a, it's not a sophisticated one, however much it is dressed up in the language of theory. Really pleased to hear you describe it as a perversion of postmodernism, because this is a conversation that I find myself having quite a lot, which is that the way a lot of this stuff manifests itself, it, it, it's sort of, it's like a really filtered, diluted version of a lot of what was happening in postmodern theory. Well, and yeah, I mean, most of the people who espouse it don't, haven't read, they haven't read Lyotard and Foucault and Derrida. No. I mean, you know, look, the French, I mean, most, mostly post-structuralists, but let's call them postmodernists of the, of the 1960s, were all speculative in their theorising. They weren't saying, let's, let's apply this to society. Let's, let's change society because of this, because they were all against mm. grand narratives, meta-narratives, yeah. religion, yeah. science, whatever. This is another meta-narrative. What, what we're seeing in the last few years is we're going to apply these principles of postmodernism, the idea that uh, power const constructs everything in society and that knowledge is created through language. And we're going to apply those as though they are fact and true and irrefutable, which is what everyone is doing now. It's what the government's doing, what education is doing, what higher education is particularly mired in it. That's not what the postmodernists would have yeah. would have wanted. Foucault was an epistemologist and he was interested in language and he was interested in theorizing the way in which power might move around. And he talks yeah. about power being positive, not just negative as well, or, or you know, power can create as much as it can destroy. Yes. He wasn't interested in, in my view, wasn't interested in ontology or metaphysical questions or anything beyond theorizing how language works. But as you say, it then gets applied somewhere along the line or, or just even not even that. It's interesting. I mean, we'll finally talk about your book in a minute, but the inter <laughs> intersectional is a word where the way that it's used in social media discourse, social justice, discourse, yeah. there's no correlation to the quite heavily theorized and Descriptive more than prescriptive use of it in theory. No, I mean, it's very simplistic, isn't it? What we're seeing now, it's, it's very heavy handed. It's, you even see things that would have utterly just uh, uh, appalled him. I mean, you know, this idea of uh, me medicalizing masculinity. What, what, what was the group in America who, who decided that masculinity should be deemed a kind of, I suppose, a kind of mental issue, a kind of <laughs> exactly the sort of thing that Foucault would have written against, you yeah. know, the idea of medicalization of, of this kind of thing. And it, it's a different thing that borrows the same ideas, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so, so for instance, if you take the deconstructive approach, which comes straight from the, the post-structuralist, that, you know, you pick apart a text for its internal contradictions, for, for where you feel the author has expressed conscious or unconscious homophobia or racism or whatever, that reminds me very much of what we see now in, uh, in people intuiting what they think you think. We can see from your language 
that you are perpetuating a racist discourse, which means you are a racist. And even if you don't think you're a racist, we know that you are. That mm. reminds me very much of what we used to do to it when I was studying as an undergraduate to English literature. We just pick apart a book, call it a homophobic book, and get an a, a you know get a top mark. So you get a top mark from us. Not but, of us. Okay, but maybe maybe things have changed. But remember, I was a, an undergraduate at the time of where cultural materialism was sort of had its yeah. grip over yeah. English literature yeah. and new historicism in America. It was very easy to get. There were tricks you could play, and it was just a matter of, of deploying the right terms. We were talking to Lee Stein the other day about what she thought wokeness actually was and what we were saying that, you know, that there's all different potential causes or manifestations. But for me, it's the sort of self-defeating and contradictory nature of a lot of this discourse. And Foucault, yeah, he talked about th truth is constructed and then this is how we can deconstruct it. But then that's manifested itself as I've got a truth that's more important than anyone else's and I'm going to protect right. it using exactly the sort of systems that Foucault was trying to deconstruct. Well, Foucault wasn't saying there's no such thing as objective reality. He was saying that yeah. we, can't re we can't reach it through our own mechanisms and, and through our own discourses. It's a different thing. But the, the lived experience notion that we're getting now is this sense that there is... I mean, we are literally having people attempting to decolonize maths and science because they believe in new ways of knowing, okay? And, the, uh, you know, this is, this is an absolute nonsense. I, 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 I consider it really dangerous actually I and, and I imagine you've got a lot I mean look you're in you're in higher education at the moment so you've probably seen a lot more of this but I, I think I think there's a growing intolerance I get contacted by academics all the time about the impossibility of having a discussion about these matters that in of itself should be a cause for concern even if you don't come from this perspective you can theorize your way out of everything and the problem is people are very intimidated by this I mean a lot of the most idiotic things I see on Twitter come from academics and you see them all <laughs> gather together they tend to be blue check academics as well and they tend to gather together and reinforce each other and 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 people are scared to wade in because of that PhD sign next to their name and they don't want to but actually it's it's perfectly fine to say a lot of these people are very mediocre minds and they're not that smart and it's perfectly possible to do well in academia if you just simply well there's a lot of nepotism that goes on if you know how to deploy the right words. I don't have much respect for a lot of these academics. I don't respect a lot of their disciplines. This is the, the, the obscurantism of academic jargon. It, it, it doesn't intimidate me because I know what it means. And if, if, if people did know what it meant, it wouldn't intimidate them either. It's just people trying to dress up very shoddy ideas with language. The incoherence is a feature, not a bug of this stuff, part of it. And it doesn't help that early postmodernists did play with incoherence as a deliberate ploy in the way that they write. I'm really, really vehemently against the sort of Jordan Peterson argument that Foucault and Derrida are to blame for everything that's happening on campuses and everything that's happening in wokeness and, and so on. But I do think one of the things that Derrida is most guilty of is introducing this idea of play, you know, when he plays with language to destabilize language, because that's given yeah. license to any, for anyone to say anything. Yeah. And they've got that defense. If I, ch I remember specifically one time challenging something that someone said, oh, Foucault said this. And I asked, well, how do you know? How did he know? And they had nothing because he would make these assertions, you know, as a historian, he wasn't the best. This deification of, of Foucault is weird. I, th yeah. I think you're right that it's probably unfair to blame, you know, them for every I mean, it, oddly enough, I've, like most of the, the social justice ideology and the, the, the need to police language and the authoritarianism, you find it in more in writers for the Frankfurt School, you find it in Marcuse, but they never cite him. They cite, uh, they do cite Foucault and they do. But that's what another thing I noticed as an undergrad is most people didn't read Foucault, they just read about him. Yeah. And yeah. so they had a sort of second hand. I had to read the bloody stuff, you know, because I was writing about it. Yeah. The, I, the, what scares me about it is the, is the, you know, I keep talking to academics who say they think the humanities is lost. They think that's probably not salvageable now, which is quite a strong statement, but maybe there's a point to that. 
I'm going to now try and bring this back to the book because <laughs> there's two things you've said that I want to like explicitly pick up on in this question is that mm. you mentioned infantilism. So I was wondering, does, does that to some extent explain the shift in, in form from the first book, Woke, to the little book? Is there a kind of literalising of that idea that there's something incredibly childish going on that means you've done it this way? Partly that. Partly it's a direct response to the rash of woke children's books that are now appearing on the market. We've had Feminist Baby, uh, Goodnight Story for Rebel Girls, which is, a, which is actually not as bad as the other. I mean, I've sort of modelled it a bit on that because I, I, I just found it funny that that was a book for young girls with all the sort of feminist icons of the past and they included... <laughs> Coco Chanel, who was a Nazi collaborator. So I thought that was quite funny because they didn't mention the Nazi bit. But apart from that, like most of the people who are including that book are actually rather wonderful human beings and deserve celebration. But, you know, uh, but I, I just find it quite funny when indoctrination doesn't even have the sense to dress itself up or attempt to disguise itself. So when you look at like um, the new book, Anti-Racist Baby or Feminist Baby, and people are posting pictures of little babies with Black Lives Matter t-shirts reading these books, you think that's quite funny, you know, that to me. And it's a little bit disturbing as well. Um, Afua Hirsch wrote a book for children, a woke book for children, which was about Lady Hale. There's been a, a lot of them and they do quite well. So I thought it would be quite funny for Titania to talk to children. It is indoctrination quite flagrantly and hence the popularity of drag queen story time for kids, which is a, a bizarre, I mean, I, I don't think there's any particularly harmful about kids seeing drag queens, but I just think it's a weird, it's a weird way to direct your energy. I think there is this sense in which there is something quite sinister about uh, the books actually so I thought she'd do it and also because Titania can't talk to kids because she can only talk in this jargon and she swears a lot and she's not she can't talk down to kids so she just speaks as normal and expects the kids to I noticed that a lot of the a lot of the chapters kind of begin with sort of the register of the the story for children like let me tell you now about this yeah. very important and then then that after sort of paragraph one or two that she stops yeah. trying as she says at the start of the book, you know, her first words as a baby were seize the means of production. So she doesn't feel the need to talk down to kids. I mean, it's, it's all in the, the title. The title is the joke, my first little book of intersectional activism. It's right there. She's absolutely not going to talk. Also, she thinks that children are the ones with the wisdom. They have this sort of innate, innate wisdom that will guide us to the... But what she's really scared of, I think, is that children might grow up and rebel against her. And that's something that I think a lot of the, um, the woke generation are terrified about because that will happen, obviously, and they won't know what to do because they're, they're, they're so, their worldview is so based on certainty and I don't think they'll be able to cope. And the only way they'll be able to cope is more authoritarianism, more totalitarianism, that's the only way they'll be able to deal with it. I suppose also the idea that she would write this ties into um, another thing we were talking to Lee Stein about, which is the, the kind of, the, the capitalist elements of woke, wokery, wokeism, that it's also, it's all about selling stuff and buying stuff. And yeah. that you could imagine that Titania would think there's probably some easy money to be made in writing a book for children. I will, yeah. I'll yeah. do that. Yeah, she, yeah she's, she's well into flogging it. She mentioned, <laughs> she also plugs her first book in the second book. Yeah, so. Yeah. You know, she says go and buy woke because there's a great chapter on defeating capitalism and you can buy it on Amazon. And she's got this thing about, there is a real industry here, which is worth laughing at. It, like, it, because it dresses itself up as this virtuous thing that's spreading the truth. And look at Robin D'Angelo. Robin D'Angelo charges 12 grand an hour to go into corporations and tell them how racist they are. It's hilarious. It's really funny. And, and people are willing to pay this. And the, the uh, diversity classes and unconscious bias and implicit bias training, which does absolutely nothing, 
We've got the data in on that, right? So, you, so this is a perfect example. So implicit bias training, which has been proven to be a complete waste of time. It does absolutely nothing. It cannot achieve it. We obviously have infinite in unconscious biases. Every human being does. But the idea that you can control them or fix them or regulate them. I mean, if you take the test twice in one day, you'll get completely different results, right? It has been proven to be a waste of time. And yet people around the country in HR departments, if you work for a corporation, you will be forced to do this. Right now, more people have to stand up and tell them, no, I'm not going to do this. Plus, if you believe in liberal values, no one has a right to be probing around in your head. That's the other thing. Even if the thoughts in your head are unpleasant, it's got no fucking nothing to do with these people. Right. So but but there's a lot of money to be made. Right. And I think I, I'm getting messages all the time from teachers. I used to be a teacher. So I get a lot of messages from teachers about oh, you know, this book, White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo is now on the syllabus. We've been told to read this. We've, Robin D'Angelo's whole thesis is that all white people are racist. And if you confront them about it and they are defensive, that's their white fragility in action. And that proves that they're even more racist. So she can't lose. So she's set up the game. She's rigged the game so that she can't be proven uh, wrong. And it's really dangerous stuff. What, you know, I've always balked at saying that identity politics and the social justice movement is a racist movement. And the reason I do is because I don't like the promiscuous way that word is used. And I don't like the way that they use it so promiscuously. I don't want to go down to that level. But I'm on the verge. You know, I really am. I'm just, I'm starting to think I might just start using the word because that's what this is. And if it's not racist, it's certainly creating the conditions where racism will thrive. Absolutely. I have no doubt that this will make, a, make us a far more racist society. It already has over the past few months. You know, that's the effect that it's having. Robin D'Angelo, by the way, is a racist. So I, I mean, I, I'm happy to say that because she says it herself. Again and again in the book, she gives anecdotes where she, she just expresses her own racism. There's one where she's talking about going to a party and she's meeting a friend and there's two parties going on. One on one side of the street, one on the side of the other. And one is predominantly white and one is predominantly black. And she says she has a panic attack in case she, she might have to be going to the black part. And, I, and, and then she think, thinks, oh, so maybe I should interrogate my racism there. And I'm thinking, yes, yes, you fucking should, because you're a racist. And then she's, she has another one later on in the book where she talks about giving one of her stupid talks at a, a, a conference and someone leaves the room and she says to her black colleague, maybe it was your hair that frightened them off. And again, she wants to, and I think it would never even occur to me to say something like that. And just because Robin D'Angelo is a racist, so the way, her, the way she deals with it is to, to assume that everyone must be. Well, if all yeah. white people are racist, it kind of exonerates her. And I think it's an incredible, like it's such a badly reasoned, badly written book. There's, there's the first thing. And the fact that it's doing so well and the fact that corporations and universities are unquestioningly treating this like this is some sort of decent piece of work. It's not. It's the ramblings of a racist. I was actually a bit worried because I, there's a chapter on Robin D'Angelo in the book. I'd written this book, of course, before the George Floyd death and the BLM stuff and all of that. So obviously there was no time to, I just had time to sneak in some stuff about the coronavirus. Literally, that, so that's roughly when it, when it got written. Was, it, it was the final draft was submitted just as the coronavirus, just as lockdown started. Just rapidly wrote some stuff in to bring it up to date. But of course, I didn't anticipate that the culture would, be, would now be just completely mainstream. So yeah. there's no mention of Black Lives Matter. But, and I remember at the time someone said to me, Robin, you've done a whole chapter on Robin D'Angelo. No one knows who she is. And I was like, oh, well, like, I'll, I'll, it'll be like an in-joke. And now she's the top-selling author. I'm thinking, great, okay, that's all right then. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's so, it, it chimes with the zeitgeist that's been around for a while so perfectly, doesn't it? The idea that don't, don't think about systems, don't think about structures, look at yourself, look at, have a, spend some time with yourself, think about what you could be doing, buy yeah. some stuff, 
as well and just keep that narcissistic gaze on your own self and yeah in so in terms of Robin D'Angelo it seems like the book is is targeting the issues with what she's arguing the kinds of what seem like obvious problems with with what she's what she's doing and what she's saying and sometimes it's more it seems like the target is more the sort of uncritical adulation that certain individuals receive so um, sort of Greta Thunberg in that and and Meghan Markle as well although Meghan Markle of course also attracts a huge amount of negative publicity but it seems like your targets aren't Thunberg or Markle but the ways no. that people write and think about them just I'm is glad, that, I'm glad that you right? said that because that's that's absolutely right I mean it's like you know what I'm not going to start slagging off a teenage girl you know it's 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 um it's about the way in which she is deified by this movement a, a movement that i i don't you know i have some sympathy with as it happens i don't think it's a good idea to 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 treat a child like a to canonize this child <laughs> and put her out there on the world stage and i i think there's something a bit off with that and probably not very good for her mental health either <laughs> you know so i i, I or any kind of uncritical adulation of a public figure is, is to me, a, a, a problem and, and does point to this quasi-religious quality of, mm. the, of the woke movement, um, that they have their saints, you know, they have their blessed figures. So that's, yeah. what that's, that's what that's about. That's a weird thing to me. All of this stuff, these people, the, the words from theory, it's all evoked, it's all evocative. Yeah. I suppose the dog whistles thing comes back to feeling that something has evoked something. Right, and that's what makes people so scared to stand up so, I mean, just yesterday or the day before, you know, when Rowan Atkinson made his point about the SNP's new hate crime bill, he was yeah. trending, but half of the tweets were calling him a racist, mm. right? And this is a comedian who's lampooned racism explicitly over many years. And because he's now saying free speech has to be for everyone, he's, he's a right. I mean, this, this is what I mean about the infantilism of, of our culture. Like, to, to jump to that shows an undeveloped mind, I think, mm. and, and someone who's been failed by education. And I, I don't think that there's any other way. And that sounds terribly patronizing, but so be it. I don't see any other way to reach that, to, to, to say it. Again, yeah. it's, it's interesting with the, the insistence on the particular individuals and, and heroism and individualism. Mm -hmm. that and just villains as well, of course. Mm -hmm. So not just and the heroes, but villains. Because the JK Rowling is a perfect example of someone who, I've, I've never seen the kind of misogynistic abuse that has been thrown at JK Rowling. I've never seen the extent, that extent of misogyny in my life. But it is not just attacking her, calling her ugly or whatever, which they usually do about it. It's vile kind of graphically sexual, misogynistic yeah. language about her genitals and about, like, about raping her, about sexual assault. And that's done in the name of, we're the good guys. I think if you're going to talk about the heroes, I think the villains as well yeah. are, and the unfair treatment of the people they decide are villains. And what's horrible about all this, the people they normally single out as villains are generally really good people. So the, vil the villains that they've created are, are constructions. They're constructions of their own discourse. They're, yeah. They bear no resemblance to, to the reality, you know? That preference for individualism and individuality extends to the idea that nobody would ever speak out apart from in their own personal interest. So like when Rowan Atkinson was trending, lots of people were saying, well, Rowan Atkinson just wants to defend his right to make racist jokes so that and he can do it. Or they'll say, oh, Janice Peckham arguing that people, people don't have a platform from her platform. When she's explicitly said, I'm here to talk about the people who can't speak up. I know I can. 
Hello, it's Joe from the future. I said Janice Peckham. I actually meant Janice Turner, but her Twitter name is Victoria Peckham. It's all very confusing, but that is who I meant when I said that wrong thing there. Yeah. But I'm talking about other people. And JK Rowling is saying, I, I know I've got power and money and fame, but I'm thinking about other people. But every time the accusation comes back to, well, they just want to, why are they complaining they've got no platform? Why would you, why would anybody say anything that wasn't about them? Well, when you had the, the letter in Harper's Magazine, quite famously signed by people like Salman Rushdie and Noam Chomsky and Mar Margaret Atwood, overwhelmingly left-leaning signatories who even did the obligatory Trump bashing in the first couple of paragraphs of the open letter, which was completely, I understand why they had to do it because this was coming from that leftist side, but it, it did detract from the message of the letter. And it was about cancel culture. And the response from people like Owen Jones and people in The Guardian and, and left-leaning columnists was, well, uh, these are very powerful, privileged, people and this just proves that cancel culture doesn't exist well the only reason they could sign the letter was because they were rich famous and powerful because actually cancel culture affects normal people it doesn't affect rich. jk rowling can't be cancelled mm. because she's a multi-billionaire right so we saw this i mean she's got the same publisher as me and, and the, the publishing house uh, didn't cancel her they said we're going to stand up for free speech but do you think for a second if she had been an author who of my stature say I would have been out in a second. I would have been ditched straight away. Like it, it, cancel culture is not about the rich and the powerful. It's about ordinary people who are terrified of saying the wrong thing. And I can't believe these, the, the contortions of logic that it takes to, to try and suggest that this doesn't exist when we all know it does. And we, yeah. we've seen it. Like there are so many, this gaslighting that's going on. I mean, that's one of their favorite words, but they're the ones doing it. Oh, no one's getting fired for their opinions every day. And there are stories about it every day in the press. And not only that, it only takes a few instances of that for most people to just learn to shut up and not say what they what they think, the, it baffles. It's the denial of reality. I can't I can't stand. If they if they had a different perspective on it, that's one thing. But just deny the reality that's in front of our eyes. That is what Donald Trump does. Mm. Donald yeah. Trump will say something like this. I didn't say that. And like we've got it on video. You said it yesterday. We can watch it. But he just denies and denies and denies. And that's what the woke do. The woke are very similar. They will say it's not true that people are getting fired for their, for their opinions. Then you link them to 20 examples of where that happens. And they say, no, that didn't happen. I'm like, I just showed you. <laughs> very, I'm sorry, I'm sounding very infuriated, but it, but it, is, in, it is infuriating. Uh, J.K. Rowling is a good example. There was another children's author around the same time. She was a children's writer who simply tweeted in support of Rowling and was dropped by her publisher. So, so, it, so yes, J.K. Rowling can't be canceled. J.K. Rowling's not the one we're worried about. And actually, I really admire her. She doesn't have to do all this. That's the, the other thing. Yeah. She doesn't have to. She could have gone on being beloved for the rest of her life by everyone. Yeah. It does take courage. I don't care how rich she is. When you talk about, about being infuriated and, and you, can, you can kind of explain exactly why, as, as Andrew Dorr, whether just having this conversation or on Twitter or in articles, how does writing as Titania help? Does it, does it help with that or make you actually more infuriated? Is, is it a benefit to you or, or does um, it make you more angry? No, it can be. It can be. I mean, you know, the other night, for instance, like some, I haven't been tweeting as, from her as often. And that's because, you know, I've written a second book. I want to be getting on with other, other stuff. So now it has become more of an outlet. I think before, you know, now it is mostly when I tweet, it's things that have annoyed me. Uh, and that's an interesting development. So the other night, someone sent me a clip of an American Democrat politician. So again, quite a powerful person. LaShawn Ford, his name is. And he was saying in Illinois, he was saying, he was calling for the banning of history lessons and the banning of history textbooks and because he thinks that history, the way it is currently taught, uh, perpetuates white privilege. And he used the phrase 
we're going to ban. I want to ban history lessons until an, a suitable alternative can be found. So they, these, this chilling Orwellian, and there's no other word for it, this chilling Orwellian ex expression of an idea coming from a well-intentioned perspective, I've no doubt. I, and I felt I had to. And because, you know, so Titania obviously endorsed him and said this was brilliant. And, and you know, because she loves Orwell. She thinks 1984 is actually a really great book with lots of great ideas. And, and so I, I felt I had to say something about that. And more and more, when I do something like that, I know I'm going to get just piled on for it. But it's got to the point where... I think everyone has to be a bit braver. Everyone has to. That's the only way this is going to stop. You acknowledge that you, you, you found this guy, you, you assumed this guy was well-intentioned. And I thought that was interesting because, to be fair, although you're clearly satirising everything she thinks and says, I would say Titania is well-intentioned, isn't she? She doesn't ever tweet that JK Rowling should die in an oil fire or that... She doesn't ever tweet that anybody should be hurt or... She, she does... Well basically come from a good place doesn't she it's just that she's an idiot i don't know about that i've i've, got, I've been back and forth on that because she has said that infanticide wouldn't be such a bad idea like legalizing infanticide because yeah. she says these rash things sometimes and she does think that a lot of men should just be killed the whole point is that she she can come to these horrible really evil conclusions that completely lack empathy through a process of compassionate logic that's the, the point you you know if you're posting pictures of your erect penis under a tweet that JK Rowling has posted aimed at children about her new children's book. And you can still think that what you're doing is good and virtuous, right? That's an incredible, scary, frightening leap. You know, you are, you are eff effectively uh, acting in an evil way, but you've convinced yourself that what you're doing is, is good, okay? Now that to me is um, something that we, we ought to address. And that's something that I, to come back to what you're saying, that's what I'm trying to do through Titania a little bit is like, I want her to be saying these evil things from a position of compassion because I think that's what they do. I don't want to start guessing the motives of people. So yeah. I do generally assume the best intentions. And I do anyway, because I, I do believe in humanity. But from time to time, I can see the behavior of people on Twitter and I think, no, you're just not a good person. You're not a good human being. Well, that's the end of part one. And if you have any thoughts, comments, questions or observations about all of this, we'd love to hear from you. I just, I, I read another interesting thing about cancel culture recently, and I really wish that we'd had this input when we interviewed Andrew. It's, it's very, um, very interesting reflections on cancel culture that I, that I read in the last few days. Oh yeah, what is that? Well, it's an interview in the weekend section of the Times on Saturday, January 16th, 2021. And I partly bought that paper because it promised an article on beat the boredom, fun food and games to get you through, i.e. get you through lockdown. Um, but also it advertised an interview with Richard Hammond on cancel culture. So we've mentioned Richard Hammond briefly in this episode already. Richard the Hamster Hammond is a car liking man and a sidekick on Top Gear. That's the program where they sort of say if they think or um, certainly used to say if they think cars are cool and then they're like, Oh no, Jeremy has driven across the Alps in a Vauxhall Astra. Oh, I'm, I'm cross about that. And I am such a petrol head and I got there more slowly because my old Ford Mondeo that I'm driving for a laugh was not as good as the old Vauxhall Astra. So it's that, that sort of thing. That's, that's what he does. Yeah. Yeah. I'm familiar with that. I and mean, it's not, they're not on Top Gear anymore though, are they? They're on. No, no. But, but when they were, it was like that. And I'm sure it's still like that now. So what did the thinking woman's necklace wearing man have to say about cancel culture? Um, well, he was talking about an episode of said Top Gear where he said something like, I don't, I don't like ice cream because I'm not gay or something like that. And um, unsurprisingly, people got annoyed. 
And so his thoughts about cancel culture are these. The mistake I've made in the past is thinking that just because everyone in my happy place knows when I'm making when I make a joke, I'm being daft. The joke's on me saying something stupid. But I realise now in someone's world, that thing I just belittled is a big deal. So my heart goes out to them. I also think we are a hair trigger society. Say something wrong, you are racist and sexist and bad. No, you just said a wrong thing. We should be able to take things back if it causes offence. We should be able to re-examine our thinking without being labelled. So it wasn't as much about cancel culture as I hoped it would be. I think what Richard Hammond mostly thinks about cancel culture is that he shouldn't be cancelled. Well, how interesting. But I mean, you you needn't worry because Frankie Boyle proves that there is hope for you if you do get cancelled. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure if you you can say, like, Rebecca Adlington has a face you you don't like, uh, you know, if Frankie Boyle can come back from that, then Richard Hammond can come back from saying ice cream. Is, is for gay people. But I did also learn from that, uh, there's like a brief bit at the top of the interview that, that sort of summarised Richard Hammond's preferences. So he prefers accelerators to brakes, he prefers fry-ups to smoothies, he prefers country walks to the gym because he's not gay. But anyway. That's the end of the episode, it's the end of part one, isn't it? Yeah, so um, what if people have an opinion? If you have an opinion about any of this, please do hit us up in socials. Send us an email at satirenomore at gmail.com. Tweet us at satirenomore. Send us a message on Instagram at talkaboutsatire. We'd love to hear what you make of all of this. You know, there's some pretty bold takes in this discussion. There will be in part two. And we'd love to hear from you. We'd love not only to hear what you think about this episode, but also if there are things that you want us to be talking about with reference to satire, we're always open for suggestions. Yes, share share us your ideas and join us again later this week for part two, which will also include a new instalment of Adam and Joe's News About Satire, where we will talk about, amongst other things, Charlie Booker's Death to 2020. But for now, goodbye, listeners. Goodbye. And even though it is just for a relatively brief amount of time, sit up. Shut up and eat our satire. Bye. Bye.